Trigger warning. This podcast contains discussions about self-harm and suicide, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Hello again listeners and welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast as always is brought to you by Ben, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. On to my special guest now, and I'm delighted to be joined by Vent champion Charlie Roebuck. Charlie was one of the first people to write for Vent and has been on his own amazing mental health journey over the last few years, discovering things about himself he probably never knew was possible and experiencing some amazing highs, but also some very dark moments. Where others might have given up, he has come through the other side. Charlie is a former professional cricketer for Yorkshire County Cricket Club, where he also coordinated their disability programme and currently works as an operations manager. This is how our conversation went. Charlie, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. First off, how are you, pal? And how are you and the fam coping with the lockdown? Good uh, good morning, mate. Um, yeah, we're all good over here. Um, it's just um, strange times, but we're getting through and taking it as a day that comes. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad, mate. I'm not too bad. I think I'm exactly the same, to be honest. Lots of ups and downs, um, sometimes ups and downs on a daily basis rather than a weekly basis. But yeah, definitely, definitely managing, definitely managing. I sometimes say to people when they ask me, you know, how are you? I just go surviving. <laughs> yeah, um, I think everyone's in the same boat. So it gives you a bit of bit of um, a coping mechanism to know that other people are in the same place. So it's, so it's helpful. Mm, exactly, exactly. Um, we've got a lot to get through. Shall we crack on? Yep. Let's go. Let's start the pod, Charlie, by talking about your cricketing journey and professional career. So firstly, how did you get into cricket? You know, who got you into it and, and who were some of your idols in the game growing up? Um, it was a bit of a weird one. I was normally into football when I was a kid, but um, I used to go down and watch my dad. Uh, my dad played down at Armitage Bridge in Huddersfield. So I'd spend most of my Saturdays watching him and just playing with a few, a few of his friends sons and stuff on the sideline so it wasn't really until I were a bit older that I actually got into it fuller but um, growing up I spent a bit of time in Australia so more the Australians that I actually looked up to see Shane Warne, Adam Gilchrist probably one of my favourite um, and Ricky Ponting so yeah it was just through family playing my dad and granddad more than anything um, just playing with them on the drive at home or just going down and spending my Saturdays down at the cricket club and, and playing on the outfield and stuff when you could. Mm. You started your career in schools cricket before you played for Broad Oak Cricket Club where you still play now is that right? Yeah um, my yeah. career started at Broad Oak um, so yeah I started there when probably about nine or ten mm. um, I played played there up until I signed for Yorkshire at 15 and then um, I left for a few years and and I went back a couple of years back um, it's always been classified as, as my home um, it's one of the places that I really enjoy going we've got a good community and family family cricket club um, and I'll probably be there for for a long time and it's got a big mm. place in my heart 
Mm. And what were some of your memories of, of playing for Broadoak um, before you joined Huddersfield um, Cricket Club and, and were eventually scouted for Yorkshire? You know, what were some of your favourite matches, you know, favourite memories and maybe a few few friends and uh, f- uh, top players that we can shout out? Um, most of my memories were just um, just playing with my mates, really, more than anything. We had a really good junior side where we've won the Walker Cup, which is the under-17 Cup, three times. i playing in the finals there, um, making my first team debut at, at 10 years old, scoring my first 50 for the first team. I think I were 11 or 12, um, one of the youngest players to ever do it. Um, and then just coming through the through the ranks, a um, couple of us went on to play for Yorkshire. So there were one of my close friends, Jack Hargreaves, played for Yorkshire. Um, a guy called Eddie Wilson started there as well. Daniel Rushworth all played Yorkshire age group cricket. And then we had some of the players now in the first team, Adam Franz, Tom McCready, that we just grew up all playing together. Um, we're, we're quite fortunate that still our first team now has probably got eight of us that, played junior cricket there. You don't really see that round in much league cricket. Then down into the second team, I think, another eight. So we are a massive community club and that's probably the the most I've taken from playing there is how much of a family we actually are. Tell me a bit about the next stage of the journey now from Broad Oak to Huddersfield and then eventually Yorkshire. You know, How did the opportunity to join Yorkshire come about and, and how did you feel in those first few weeks after you had signed as well? Um, so you start obviously playing your junior cricket um, and I was playing a bit of second team and first team men's stuff and then it was um, you're just scoring runs uh, or taking wickets and then you get selected for the representative sides at your age group so you've got under 11s, 13s, 15s, 17s so got selected for them um, wasn't really until I was 13 when Yorkshire kind of kind of came about um, it was after the season after I scored my first 50 for for Broad Oak men's first team, um, one of the players recommended me to the York stuff. I ended up on the Pathways scheme, which runs through the winter where you train, and then selected for the under-14s B team the year after. Um, I was just scoring runs and enjoying my cricket more than anything. Um, then worked your way up um, through there, so playing age group cricket through and then signed at 15. It's just more volume of runs that you score um, and everything that gives you the chance at the next level. And, yeah, we're very fortunate that it happened. But there were a lot of steps in, in the way in which you go by. So I started, in, started at Huddersfield in, and then went to Yorkshire's under-14s B team and scored a lot of runs for them and then made it into the first team at under-14 level. I think I won the batting prize, actually, for under-14s A and B team in the same season. Um, and then the more you score, the more you get recognised and it just happened to keep scoring runs. But I think the most important thing was I was just enjoying my cricket at the time. Mm. And just talk to me a bit about, you know, your journey at Yorkshire Cricket Club. You know, how how did it progress? Um, how do you reflect on it looking back and, 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 and what happened, you know, when you, when you eventually had to leave as well? It was... Um, Quite a quick journey, to be honest. Um, from signing at 15 on the scholarship scheme to then moving into the county second team, uh, kind of happened over one winter. I had a good winter training. Um, I was pretty fit. I was hitting the ball well. And New College, where I'd gone to, to college, had a tour to Barbados. Um, 
I went over there and scored a lot of runs on that tour and came back and ended up straight picked in the second team, um, which is quite a rarity. Um, I think I played two academy games on a Saturday. Um, so I played one Saturday and then a Saturday after I got, I think I got 23 not out and then 100, and, 100 against Harrogate. And before I knew it, I was playing county second team cricket, which is a massive step up. And I never faced any bowling as, as quick in my life up till then. Um, but I did quite well in the first game. I got 40-odd against Lancashire. And then the second game, I got 60-odd against Somerset. And, yeah, it was just a, a whirlwind start to your career. Um, playing Somerset, the England scout there, ended up in the England age group, set up at the, after two games playing county cricket. Um, so, yeah, it kind of went went from there. And obviously in sport, you have your ups and downs. Um, I had a bit of an up and down rest at season, um, but I was consistently doing okay. I was scoring runs in patches. And then, yeah, kind of, kind of got offered a contract. So playing England age groups, um, I was selected for the England and 19s. Um, got offered a contract at Yorkshire, went away with England, came back, had a had a decent start to the next season, not too bad. I think I got 100 in seconds um, of scoring runs in the league because I was back at Kurt Burton. But um, the county ended up 30 million in debt, and that were kind of when um, I were asking questions about what was happening with the, the next contract. And at the time, they were 30 million in debt, so that kind of kind of it so I got released in the middle of the season I went and played a game for the MCC down against Gloucestershire got some runs there and then went and trialed at Durham and um, played the rest of that season at Durham scored a lot of runs signed for the next season but then had a serious back injury in that winter um, and yeah that was kind of it then um, that was the career done and had to kind of go down another route and ended up at university. So yeah, we're a, a short time and a bit of a whirlwind, mm. but some fond memories from it, um, some good times and obviously some, some negative times as well. You say a lot on your vent articles and on social media that you're known as a, in quotation marks, sick note because of the amount of injuries you had. Now we'll talk about the relationship between injury and mental health in a bit, but for you, did this, did this banter in inverted commas, as I'm, I have to use that word, um, affect you or annoy you? Yeah, um, looking back, it probably did. I think it just knocks your confidence. Um, you do all the training, you get you get physically fit, physically strong, and then a setback pushes you back. And I kept seeming to pick up a lot of niggles, a lot of um, a lot of tears in the muscles, and then obviously the back injury. And yeah, I had a I had a effect on my mental health because like you say people started knowing you for for being injured um it's part and parcel of the game and you probably never fully fit when you play anyway but um yeah i had a had a bit of a negative effect on me and never knowing whether you're fully right or or when the next injury is coming as such and it kind of knocked my confidence then to to play and it'd take you a little bit longer to come back from them them knocks so yeah mm. we're a pretty tough tough thing and injuries are tough enough as it is um but constantly picking up injuries just made it a little bit harder mm. 
I want to ask this, this next question in sort of two parts, um, just building on what you've just said there, Charlie. First of all, do you think you had enough support emotionally and from a mental health perspective when you were injured? You know, I hear a lot of times about cricket coaches and football coaches sort of banishing injured players from the dressing room or not, you know, not letting them be allowed around the club. Um, and also, I wanted to talk to you about how this kind of plays into dressing room culture in cricket and, and how much of an influence toxic masculinity has in cricket dressing rooms. For you, Charlie, in your experience, was it ever a negative or something that made you think twice about opening up about your mental health? Or were there any occasions where you did open up, but the reaction made you regret it maybe? Or, or did you suffer in silence, so to speak? At the time, because um, obviously it's going back 10 years or so now, it was kind of not talked about you just kind of got on with it and in your own little bubble if you were injured you go see the physio and do your session with physio go do your rehab um you were in and around the lads but because you weren't playing or or in in that squad you kind of just did your own thing just go away do that um mental health speaking side there wasn't really anyone you could speak to about that at the time it wasn't something that you'd open up about. Um, the support wasn't necessarily there. The support was more focused around your physical health and how you were playing the sport. Um, so your, your technical and tactical knowledge of the sport. And I think that had a had a big effect on a lot of players coming through at that time. Um, now I know for for sure now that the support that they that they get in cricket is is massive on that side. The PC have worked wonders on supporting players, young players and things now, and have stepped up and noticed it. But going back 10 years, it necessarily wasn't there at that time. Um, it kind of started a little bit more as as I got released and stopped playing at that level. There was more support coming available. But it was something, especially the club that I played for, Yorkshire, um, it's kind of the mindset of the area. We are tough northerners. You don't show emotion, especially as a man. You just dig in, get on with it, um, and go through. You could speak to people a bit, but there's a lot of strong characters in a sport in dressing room, so it wasn't really spoken about in the dressing room or in and around the dressing room. Uh, when you're in the dressing room, you kind of had to put a brave face on, grit your teeth, and get on with it. Where sometimes you did just need that shoulder to cry on as such, or or hug on the back saying it's going to all be all right. Um, luckily, I found it afterwards, but at them times, I think it wasn't really readily available. Mm. We've seen in recent years um, how mental health has come to the forefront. And, you know, we've had trailblazers like Marcus Trescothic who talked about depression um, at a time when depression wasn't really understood. Um, and you've also had real tragedies like Tom Maynard um, for you, did people like Marcus Trescothic actually help you in sort of being feeling comfortable and opening up? And, and have there been any other players who have, have come out recently that you felt sort of inspired by or have helped the conversation further? It did. It helped to know that people were suffering similar stuff that you were. Um, so it gave you that confidence that you're not the only po person within your industry. And I think cricket is is such a tight-knit group that now there is that support available, but it is also a hard place to be because you're on the road all the time. So knowing that there's someone out there speaking up and talking about it 
gives you that confidence to say, actually, I'm I'm the same. I'm struggling with it. Um, let's engage a conversation over it. And I think a lot more people coming out, um, like you say, Marcus, um, Jonathan Trott, uh, Kate Cross from the women's team. And there's there's a lot more talk around it, and probably cricket needs that because it is a it is a hard sport to to do for the six months, seven months of the season. You're in and out of hotel rooms, you're travelling around. If you're playing county cricket, you could be playing near enough every day a week or travelling somewhere. So you've got to have that support there or have somewhere to talk about it, which now people are comfortable talking about it. And it shows performances as well that people can talk about. It helps you improve your cricket because there's more to life than just playing cricket. Mm. Let's talk about something which you wrote for Vent about, Charlie, which is the impact that long-term injury can have on one's mental health. Now, for those who haven't read the article, just tell the listeners why you wanted to write it and, and your experiences of the injury you went through and, and are still recovering from today to some extent. Yeah, um, so the injury this time <laughs> was um, I, I did my, I had a serious knee injury, I think it was last July, so looking about 11 months ago now. Um, I tore my meniscus cartilage. I had two bucket handle tears. Uh, that's both sides of the cartilage in the center of the knee. And I had a full um, ACL reconstruction. So it's been 11 months. <clears throat> I've not been able to do anything as such. So it's been a, it's been a long time. But the thing to, that got me to write is injury is probably one of the hardest places you'll go as a sports person, especially if it's a long-term one. You can feel on your own a lot. Um, you haven't got much to do because of the injury restricting you. It's painful days because you're doing a lot a lot of rehab. Um, you're missing your favourite sport. You can't be on the field with the lads. Um, it takes its toll mentally. Um I think the mental side of an injury is not really spoken about much. It's not looked into. Everyone focuses on your physical side. Obviously, physical side, you've got all the exercises there in front of you. You've got a plan to work towards. You've got something there to to achieve as such. Whereas on the mental side, you don't really look at that, how an impact of an injury can, can affect you. So I thought through my journey in this, I thought I'd just put a bit of a piece out there what, what I'm looking at doing, how I'm coping with the mental side more than the physical side, because the physical side normally takes care of itself. Um, you go, you see your physio, you go, you see your surgeon. They tell you, right, you're having this done. You're right, you've got to do this. You're, you've got a plan there. Whereas the mental side, knowing that this injury could impact for at least, I think mine's looking on 12 months plus, um, how are you going to cope with that mentally and what are you going to do to turn it into a positive? Um, and one of the things that I do is a lot of physical activity, which for the first, after the first operation in September, um, yeah, I, it seems a bit weird, but I had to wait till September after doing it in July for my first op. I had eight weeks on crutches, so eight weeks of not being able to do anything. So how am I going to, mentally cope with that so I thought right what can I do mentally um I think I read a lot of books um I did a sports psychologist course 
Um, I was looking at different ways to keep ticking over. And no one really goes into that side of the injury because you're going to go to some dark places. Um, for that eight weeks, I couldn't really get anywhere because I couldn't drive. You can't get out. Um, you don't see as many people. So you've got to work on ways of keeping your mind fresh. So a lot of FaceTime calls, a lot of a lot of um, conversations over the phone, trying to get people around for a coffee and, and seeing people. And I thought it it probably helped with a with a lot of people who aren't in the professional world that are suffering from these injuries. And it actually links in quite nicely to what's going on at the moment, um, mm. because well you're not injured as such but we've had 12 weeks now I think of lockdown how can you make yourself better during that how can you improve as a person what can you you do and reinventing yourself a little bit and trying trying to put the injury out of your mind as such but keeping Mm. yourself fresh Mm -hmm. and just finally Charlie for anyone who who plays sport and might be going through a long-term injury right now and and maybe struggling with not being able to participate or compete. Well, they definitely not won't be able to now, but I mean, I mean, in the future <laughs> when sport is kicked, up, is kicked up again, what message or advice would you give them? It's quite a, it's quite a tough one. Everyone's individual, so you've got to find something that works for yourself. But personally, I think just find something that you love doing away from sport. Um, you've got a perfect opportunity to reset yourself your body's saying look have a break and do something different so I've spent a lot of time with family um that I probably wouldn't get if I was still playing sport because um, my week's kind of taken up by that um I've now done a course on sports psychology um and I've read books that I probably wouldn't read if I if I wasn't if I was playing etc. And um, it always gets easier. You're gonna have a dark day. Um, it's the nature of it. You're gonna you're gonna be on a roller coaster. But try and keep level as much as you can throughout that. Don't mm. let the highs overtake you and do too much. But also don't let the lows consume you. Try and keep level in the middle because. Any any journey you go on, you are going to go up and down, but try and keep your mindset in the middle. Enjoy the success, but obviously know that you're probably going to have a negative time, but remember that success in there so you can keep level, etc. Um, and enjoy it. Try and enjoy it. It's a it's a different experience. Yeah, it's pretty pretty rubbish, but you've got to in, got to try and get the best out of it and and look what what you can do. Mm. I just wanted to touch on just quickly what you said there about finding something away from sport, Charlie. Is is for, for for cricketer friends that you have, is creating an identity that's not just about cricket, something that they've struggled with during their cricket career and also when they've retired as well? I think it's more when you've retired than during, because during it kind of is your career. Um, but saying that you've got to find something outside of it to keep you ticking. As you probably notice, a lot of cricketers go and play golf um, just to get away. And I think you've got to find something there that isn't related to that to that sport because once you retire, 
you've got to have something to kind of keep you busy, keep you occupied. And that's probably the hardest thing is leaving a spot and not knowing what, what to do when you're not there. So if any sports person, anyone there, make sure you've got things outside of the sport, whether that's another sport, whether that's um, a completely different hobby or, or whatnot, make sure that you look into stuff that, that you enjoy and don't consume yourself with cricket. Um, I probably didn't realise that till the last couple of years when um, my daughter arrived and that kind of took the pressure off it as such. Um, it, it went back to being a game and it was my time to relax and chill because you've got something that takes your focus up. And at the end of the day, whether you're playing it professionally, playing it in your back garden, it is just a game. Um, it's not a matter of life or death. It is something that you enjoy doing and you've got to keep your enjoyment in there because that's when everyone plays the best cricket. And a lot of the top players do have something outside of it that, that they do, whether that's playing golf or reading books or whatever, playing. I know Joe Root plays the ukulele. Um, it just takes your mind away from consuming yourself with cricket because if all you're focused on is, is cricket, that puts you in a mindset where you're overthinking about everything and puts more and more pressure on yourself. Um, I was one for doing that massively. Um, and that's probably one of the reasons why my mental health declined because I was overconsumed with it. I didn't think I had anything else as such. And I thought I had to make it, otherwise I don't know where I'd be. Whereas now I can sit back and look and actually be like, nah, I've got other things that are more important, um, that I enjoy, that are fun, that are, that are different. And cricket is just a game I enjoy playing. We talked about Charlie the cricket player. Let's talk about Charlie the man now and your journey in a bit more detail. So firstly, Charlie, just tell me a bit about your early life, your teenage years, and whether looking back there were any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint. You know, who's the Charlie we meet here? Um, so going back, I was, well, such an, a normal child, just upbringing. Um, I've got a good family, mom, dad, grandparents, sister, everything. Um, grew up with them in Huddersfield. And yeah, I just just had fun. Um, I think sport was the thing that I was most natural at. Um, if I tried any sport, I kind of picked it up rather quickly. It just seemed to come naturally, naturally to me. And growing up, I think most of my time was spent on a sport field in one way or another, mostly footballers at first um, and then moved into cricket a bit more. But yeah, um, once once I started realising I was good, it wasn't necessarily myself that put me under pressure. It was more socially and the people that I hang around with, I think, when you start becoming good at something, people start taking notice of who you are. And the way in which I picked sport up, football at first, um, I ended up playing academy football and stuff for Huddersfield at a young age and moved quite quickly into that. And that's when people started noticing who you were. So you go play football, everyone kind of knew who you were in that, in that community. And especially at school, um, and local level communities, everyone knows everyone. So your name starts getting brandished around a bit more. And then moving 
from that I stopped playing football when I signed for Yorkshire as such. And as soon as you sign for Yorkshire on a contract, you kinda you kind of in that window. People know who you are. People expect things from you. And how quick my rise was then, I thought that I had to make it. I was I was in from Huddersfield. Um, everyone in the local area, all my friends and stuff, people, because I scored runs, I were doing well. Put that pressure on you, right? You have to you have to make it as such. And I think that's when it mostly started. That's when sports started consuming me more. When you get that get that badge before signing, then I didn't really know anything about it. I'll be honest. I didn't know about a second team county stuff. I didn't know the progression. I didn't know anything. I just played cricket. Um, obviously, I'd still be upset and stuff if I didn't get runs and that, but I didn't know any of the pathways. And once that pathway started coming and people started talking to you about it, um, kind of started putting more pressure on me. Everyone expected to me to make it. So my friends, um, you get nicknames Boy Wonder um, and stuff like that. So I was scoring runs, I was doing well. And then that kind of brought more pressure and that kind of changed my mindset more. I was more anxious, I was nervous, um, I was overthinking. I expected to go out and score runs all the time, and if I didn't, I'd be devastated. I'd, I'd start overthinking about it all evening. So if, if I were playing a county game, three-day, four-day, or whatever, I didn't score any runs, I'd let it consume me, and it'd start affecting me when I next go out to bat. Um, going back into your normal life if I um, if I had to go back to my friends and say I didn't get any runs you kind of look I kind of thought I was a failure um so unless I scored runs or did something it was it was really it was really tough on me and that's probably the time probably about 16 17 when I started thinking more and I think there were the signs that they were getting into the wrong mindset and something something wasn't right um, I didn't really take notice of them then, but yeah, they were probably the the starting signs of that when people, or when I thought people were were putting more pressure on, I'd start overthinking and start be worrying about what they're they actually thinking, what they're saying, what people think of me, and am I letting them down? Am I letting my friends down? Am I letting my family down because I haven't done anything and stuff like that? So yeah, they were probably the the telltale signs. You opened up about your mental health issues and how these pressures led to this anxiety and depression in a Vent article in July 2018, Charlie. Now, for the listeners who haven't read it, just tell me about, about why you wanted to open up about your story and, and also reflecting on how far you've come from when you wrote that article to who you are now. The initial reason to write the article was to try and help young sports people. I think... Sport's quite a challenging area to talk about. Not many, like you say, not many people do talk about it. And I thought if if I could get my story out there and share it, it could um it could help some people, which hopefully it did. But they were my initial things. I thought I've I've kind of sat there and and been like this for well was like that for a long time, overthinking and stuff and thinking about what everything else was kind of became a recluse with it um, and lost a lot of friends as such at times 
um, struggled to go out, struggled to even play cricket and things like that. I thought if I could shed a bit of light on on the situation, people would would potentially understand why I was why I was doing that. Um, so the idea to open up and talk about it was to try and help people understand about mental mental health, um, how it can affect anyone. Because like I say, people saw me as that that person that was going to make it um, a ridiculously talented player um, that didn't make it as such. So I thought, right, I might shed a little bit of light on why why I did struggle and, and why I found it hard. Um, so, yeah, there were the, were the reasons that, that I wanted to get it out there, but the mostly... I think I wanted to get it off my chest and try and release a bit of release a bit of pressure off me, but also try and help people out there to understand about it. Um, from then to now, it's not been the easiest road. I'll be honest. Um, I've had a lot of lot of up and ups and downs, and I don't think you're ever not going to. I think you're always going to have dark times. It's going to be challenging challenging circumstances or challenging thoughts that you've they've got to work through and from then till now I've had a lot of work with people I've got a trusted network I've opened up more to friends family um I've seen people to try and help and I'll probably go back to again having a family's changed it it's changed my perception on things because I don't really think about anything else more than, than my family um i think it's given me another person that i need to take care of um, and look after and it's time to take the pressure off me thinking about myself and trying to trying to do that um and the network in which i've created um going back to broadock and playing with probably my best best mates from there um there's a couple of them that I've known for years, um, Tom, Adam and Jack and, and most of the first team there. I've played with them for years and I've talked to them and they're probably my best friends. Um, there's people in, in other networks now that I go and have coffees with at, at times. So there's a good friend of mine, a guy called Matthew Butters that I keep in touch with and have coffees with and I think opening up to people and people understanding that's helped help me but knowing that you can go and talk to these guys um and they don't judge you is even better um and now i, I feel in a good place um i've got techniques and, and ideas to help but i also understand that i am still going to be on a roller coaster so it's more about keeping yourself level and in the middle and not letting the downs take over and not letting the highs take over and, and stuff like that. But it's been a long road, but one worthwhile. Mm. We'll talk about those ups and downs in, in recent years in, in a bit, Charlie. But firstly, when you wrote that article, when it published, what was the reaction to it? I think it was very positive. Um, I had a good, good reception. Um, people offering support or are saying they didn't know and understand and and I've helped them to understand things and yeah the report that I had from it and the feedback and and stuff was was pretty amazing I didn't didn't really expect it um but yeah it was it was extremely extremely nice and something that gave me 
gave me satisfaction and made me smile as such. Mm. You talk really bravely in the article about how you began to have suicidal thoughts and, and you started self-harming at your lowest point. Just firstly, talk to me a bit about this period of your life and the moment when you realised you needed to get help. And for anyone who's listening who might know someone who's self-harmed, let's educate them a bit as well. What what are the right things to say to them and, and perhaps the wrong things to say to them? It was probably one of the toughest times. It was it was um, sad the injury playing um i threw myself into university so i thought if i can keep busy do something take my mind off such so i didn't really deal with it um i didn't deal with losing the career that i wanted um so i kind of jumped into uni and then once uni stopped i kind of kind of at a crossroads um i didn't really think i had anywhere to go and that's when it all came back and that's when all these insecurities of um letting people down, letting my family down, not making it. Um, they're, they're heightened because I was sat at home a lot of the time. I didn't have a job at the time because I'd just finished uni. Um, so I spent a lot of time at home and, and that's that's not healthy, especially for an active person like myself. And that's when these thoughts kind of consumed me. Um, they made me think I wasn't worthy, I wasn't good enough, I was letting a lot of people down I should have made it um and I just got stuck in in a bit of a rut with it and I'd had periods like that before but there was always something there that I could disappear off and do so I didn't really think anything of it until it it lasted one two three four however many days it just kept building and building and I think the most one was that I wasn't I was letting everyone down that kind of tipped me over the edge. Um, I wasn't good enough for anyone. I'm doing the, I'm just sat here. And I should have been whatever. And yeah, that's when the suicidal thoughts started coming. I, um, the self-harm didn't really come till after that, but the suicidal thoughts came and every time I got in a car, I just wanted to drive off the road. So I would, I was just driving as fast as you could down country roads and just thinking if I crashed, it wouldn't matter. Um, although most of the time I'd probably go up to the top of a massive hill, but I had a bit of a cliff face and just stand on there and contemplate throwing myself off it. Um, and then I had, I had a job interview and um, that morning, I just couldn't get out of bed. And I think my mom or someone came to kick us out of bed to get us this job interview, and I just couldn't go. And I just got so worked up and over it because I just didn't think I was worth anything at the, that time. I um, I decided to to smash my hand through a um, dividing wall between two houses, probably the, the hardest point in a house. Um and smashed my knuckle into two pieces and ended up having it um, put back in later that day. And that kind of made me realise that something's not right because I didn't really feel any pain, to be honest with you. Um, um, after that, um, luckily got some support and, and worked through it. Mm. But um, mm. 
I never really dealt with it properly. Um, mm. I'd go back into something else. So I got a job then working back in cricket, Yorkshire Cricket Board, working with, with disabled people. And it gave me a bit of a purpose again. Um, and I absolutely loved it. Um, so I went back into that. I, I moved cricket clubs that season. I went down to Treaton in South Yorkshire. I'd never played down there, never been anywhere near that side of Yorkshire to play. And that kind of kind of brought the love for the game back. Um, I had a really good season, I think. Um, I won the league batting prize, played less games than everyone else, um, and it just seemed to click. I seemed to enjoy my cricket again. But towards the back end of the season, the the more, more pressure that started coming back, I started thinking about it, but um, I started bringing my thoughts back again. But I don't... I continued scoring runs. So I was still scoring hundreds and I was still scoring big runs. And I was like, well, yeah, so I stopped enjoying it again. And then, um, yeah, I split up with some, some of the girls, I was, the girl I was seeing. Um, and then the, worth, well, the thoughts just kept coming back and I just kept going back into ruts. And self-harming kind of at the time, um, that kind of took the mental pain away and brought a physical pain. So I didn't really think about the mental side anymore. So we're all about this physical pain because you just don't think about it. But then it, I think after my family seeing it and finding it, that it hit home again. Mm. And that's when I went and got some help through the PCA, so the Professional Cricketers Association, got some stuff through them and, it was more afterwards. Once I stopped doing it because of the effect it had, and it was more afterwards when I started seeing the scars, and it was like, I've got to live with them now. Um, I've got these all over, and it's just a constant reminder. So it's like, why? Why would you? Why would I do that to myself? People know, and it was again going back to them thoughts. So I worked through with counsellors on how to change my thought perception on things and how not to let my overthinking continue, how to challenge it, how to how to um, understand the reasoning behind it. So a lot of my stuff then was focusing on writing, writing it all down so all these thoughts that come in your head um, instead of letting them sit in your head, just getting a pen and paper or a notepad on your phone or whatever and just writing them down until they all come out and then going back to them and, and challenging them and being like, well, actually this one's not true. It wouldn't, it, I'm kind of using a court of law system and saying, actually this wouldn't, wouldn't stand up in a court of law. So why do I need to think it? And then easing your mind out of it. And that worked absolute wonders for me. So I use that. A lot I still use it now, and that's one of the best ways challenging it and using facts. Um, so I'd recommend that or looking into something for that for people there. But um, self harming was it's it's a tough one to talk about, and it's something that it's it doesn't last. The pain's never going to last. Um, so for me, it was it was pretty stupid to do. 
looking back, well, obviously at the time it's it's a different feeling, but I'd try and find a technique to, to not do it and try and calm yourself before you do do it and use the stuff that I've just mentioned. That's one of the things that I go to now. I'll go walk the dog or try and do something. Um, when I'm physically fit, I'll go do a workout, I'll go for a run, um, I'll go on the bike or whatever and try and try and get it out in that way whilst thinking through logically what's going on in my head and trying to challenge it. But that works mm. for me, it might not work for someone else. You wrote a second article for Vent a year later, Charlie, about something which can happen to anyone, but I think is still stigmatized when it comes to someone's journey, which is when you had a mental health relapse. Now, if you could just just talk to me about what caused that relapse and how you dealt with it. I think it was just a time in my life. I think I split up with someone. I'd um, had a lot of stuff going on in their life, lost, lost losing jobs or... Um, financial worries etc and it just kind of put me back in I think it were a lot of things happening at once and it just brought everything back um and you are partial to it. everyone's partial to it but the pressure of everything and I try and I'm very much a perfectionist I try and succeed at everything on my own so I stopped using my my people and thought I had to deal with it myself and that kind of pushed me back into it not opening up so I went back into a bit of a recluse over everything and yeah that kind of had a big effect on me so I did it again but not there I did it once I think and then just realized this this is just wrong and you went back to the techniques and worked through it and, and seek the people that I needed to speak to um but yeah that were that were more challenging time and in a different sense to to the previous ones and it just brought back the emotion Mm. despite that emotional hardship you went through you decided to be proactive and try and make the most out of a a horrible situation through a tweet you put out on social media just tell me a bit about that and how it became this viral moment which led you finding a solution to your job situation yeah it was um it was a bit of a weird one wasn't it um yeah, I think at the time I wanted to be proactive. I wanted to be able to, I think, knowing that I needed to support the family and stuff, and I thought I'm just going to take a gamble and just chucked it out there at next minute. I think I woke up in the morning and I, God knows how many retweets, um, job offers left, right and centre and people helping, which turned my my um, emotion around, knowing people out there will help you there's that people are looking and how much a positive everything can be how you can use social media how many people are actually helpful and really nice and, and looking out for you and it was just amazing the reception that it got i wouldn't have expected it or or anything but yeah the people that it got to and the people wishing you well or helping you was just just amazing they were from different walks of life and everything and um, it set me up and knew that I could um, could ask for support and, and someone's always there. Mm. In the article, you talk about the relapse impacting your working life in your new job that you secured when you broke down in your office to your line manager. However, in the end, something really positive came out of it. Just tell the listeners about that story and, and how it helped your mental health in the long run. Um, yeah, I'll just... Um... I think I was just going for a rough period with with it and starting a new job, having a young child and stuff. 
it just got on top of me at work one day and I just had to go out into to the thing and just, just start crying or not to even be crying about, I don't think. Um, I think I was just struggling at home. I've taken a big cut in, cut in wage because I needed a job and stuff like that. But the support in which the line manager at the time gave me was second to none. I just, she just came in, sat down, put her arm around us and just sat there with us for 10, 15 minutes. And then we went out of the coffee and just chatted. And and it it kind of made me realise I've actually got something here at this job that's that's worthwhile, that's there's people that are really nice that are going to look out for you in your darkest moments. I think I'd only been there a couple of months, if that. And um, the support that the smallest of action gave had a massive significant impact on on myself within that role and knowing that someone there that can you can talk to or that's got your back was was pretty pretty special and just finally charlie having gone through all of this and and come out the other side uh, a more resilient and and such a great person that you are. Who's the Charlie we meet now, and and what message or advice would you give to any of the listeners who might have gone through what you went through? Um, I don't really know how to answer who's the Charlie. To be honest, I'm not very good at talking about my, myself. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've just oh, um, it's more the advice I give to people that, like I've mentioned quite a few times, there's always there's always someone there for you. It may not seem it at the time, but there is always someone that's going to listen or that will just come around and have a coffee or whatever. Make sure you keep talking to people. Make sure you keep in with your friends, family or whoever it, it may be and know that it does get easier. Um, there's always there's always a way, way forward. It may not be the one that you, you're thinking, but you've got to be open to an idea of going a different different channel. But... You are you. You are special as the person that you are, and always remember that that you are. There's always something there to to put a smile on your face, and I think the biggest learning that I've got from it is that your mind is is extremely powerful, but you can control it. You can you can um, create the thoughts that you want to create. You can change the thoughts that are in there and you have control over that but yeah just control the things that you can control because everything else is irrelevant because you've got no impact on that all you can impact is on the things that you can and stripping it back to that is probably the the best bit of advice i've got um because it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks or anyone else does or or anything you can't control that that's them just control yourself as a person and who you are and keep keep going and keep enjoying it another big part of your life charlie and one that you said has given you so much joy and purpose and drive which is when your daughter florence was born now just tell me a bit about her and, and the impact she's had on your life yeah she's um she's a fun little character um yeah, she's just going on um, nearly two, so she'll be two in September. But yeah, she's 
she's brilliant. She's always smiling. She's learning all the time. She's got a ridiculously good good personality. She's yeah, she's fantastic. I think the the biggest impact is it's hard to describe unless you've been through it. And I, I say this to friends and stuff that that um, are either just started or are waiting for theirs to arrive. Um, that first feeling when you first meet them is is unreal. Um, and for me personally, it had a massive impact on myself and my life. Um, it just, yeah, she just creates a, a bubble of happiness and love. And I, um, I just want to enjoy every moment and, and stuff that I can. And she's probably the most important thing in my life is making sure she's happy and that makes me more relaxed than everything else and watching them learn grow um explore and develop as a person is is just amazing mm. and just just talk to me about those first few weeks after um florence was born you know what were you like and and did you also feel like you were ready to be a dad did your did your life change and and had who had you changed with it the first few weeks were quite challenging. She spent 10 days in, in the hospital, so we were back and forth from there. Um, but I didn't really... Um, yeah, I don't think anyone's really ready for fatherhood. Um, until it happens, you just kind of kind of thrown in. Um, but the first few weeks were just, were just amazing. Um, the slight little changes, how, how they are, and then the first time you get them home... Um, and stuff like that. it's just it's just second to none and I think changing as a person you just you're just more focused on on her and making sure she's happy she has everything um and just yeah I don't really know how to describe the changes but they were just more looking after her um making sure she's all right and trying to trying to be the best person you can be and support and love that that little one and be more relaxed and and show her the ropes as such. Mm. Do you think Florence changed the way you think about life and your mental health as well or not? Um, yeah, massively. I think I'm more, I don't get as wound up with stuff. I don't let things get to me as much um, because it's kind of shown that it's not as important life goes on. Um, the most important thing is, is her and making sure she's, she's safe, happy and has the, the best environment to grow up in. Um, and it's made, it's made me change my focus on, on a lot of things, especially sport. It's made me change my focus on sport. It makes me just think back to playing in the garden. That it's just a game. It's my way of having fun. Um, so it relaxed me more in that. Work is work. Um, I absolutely love the job that I'm doing. But when I'm working, I'm working. When I'm at home, work doesn't really matter. And it just it just um, helps you prioritise things a lot more and and change your outlook on everything in that sense that it doesn't really matter when you do it or what, what happens if you get 100, if you get none. She'll still look at you the same. She'll still smile at you the same. Um, or if you messed up something at work, 
not saying that I do or whatever, but if he did, it does. It just shows that nothing, nothing's as important as you think, and it just changes that outlook on life. Mm. And talking about you as a father now, how do how does your partner support you and your mental health when it comes to to, to Florence? And and also, do you think that you'll educate? your daughter about mental health and tell her about the bravery that her dad has showed in his own journey, obviously without telling her too many details that might scare her when she gets a bit older. <laughs> um, I think it's just knowing the support that you've got there um, and talking to people, the support that we've had is unreal. Everyone, everyone's gathered around. And I think speaking to her about mental health later in life is probably something that we will we will have a focus on and making sure that she knows that she can talk to people, that she's got a good support network or or whatnot, and she can open up. And we will educate her as best we can about about that. Um, but the support and stuff that we have and, and the conversations that we have around mental health are pretty open, um, especially with close family. We are open about how we're feeling, how how it's all going because we know when we don't that's when things can can change and we've we're trying to make more of a conscious effort to talk about it to check if everyone's okay how everyone's feeling um and just having that time to to do that or if if one of us does need some time to go out you can go out you can go for a walk with dog you can go and do a workout or uh, whatever and just understanding that everyone has has the needs in our family to do that and you are going to go up and down but we're we're not quick to judge each other on that it's it's just a simple conversation oh, i need to go and take the dog out and it's like all right that's fine let him go and then initiate conversation so we are quite open in that and we've got key strategies that that work for us both and is something that we will we will speak to to flow about um obviously when she's old enough to understand but make sure that she can see that that we do have these conversations that we we do check up on each other we do talk to her friends family etc and and show her how how it helps and how how it is mm. and if there are any new dads listening to this podcast charlie or any people who are about to become a dad and are a bit nervous, a bit anxious, or maybe are struggling with, with the ups and downs that come with fatherhood, what advice would you give them before the big day happens and maybe um, when they're in the throes of it as well? Just that um, before it happens, just don't overthink it. It's it's probably going to be the best, best time of your life. Um, just enjoy it because the feelings that it brings up and the changes that you see instantaneously are amazing. Um, and it's probably, it's going to be life changing, but in the best possible way afterwards, it is, it is challenging. You do get sleep deprived. Um, they can't talk to you obviously and, and stuff like that. So you're going to have your ups and downs, but on that, there's more ups than there is downs to see them develop as a person to grow to from go from 
next to nothing to walking, talking, crawling, etc. It's it's a fantastic journey, and you've got to you've just got to ride it because at the end of the day, you're you're going to be one of the most influential people on that that child's life, and they're the person that they grow into and stuff and the changes you see are just astronomical um and you've just got to got to love it but if you are feeling a bit down make sure that you do don't neglect yourself i think that's one thing a lot of people do and and you've got to you've got to keep in keep up with that make sure you still do the same stuff that you're doing now as best you can and create an environment where everyone can can flourish and again don't be scared to ask for help um our grandparents here will have the kids all the time um use them and don't try and change too much because you still need to look after you and you're still important within within all this so don't let don't let that the child get in the way such that I don't that sounds a bit awful but it's not because the best version of you is the best version for your child so so make sure you get everything in and honestly it's the it's the best journey you'll ever go on I absolutely I love it Um, I was terrified but it is just amazing and yeah just get just just enjoy it Our final topic of conversation, Charlie, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? Um, it's not too bad. I think we are doing this podcast in probably one of the most difficult times we've experienced for, <laughs> for a long time and definitely in my lifetime. But um, it's actually it's actually quite good. Um, I'm not in too bad a place, I think a little bit of the restrictions getting lifted have helped but yeah um it's not too bad and what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better which ones have you found that have worked and which ones haven't um so the ones that i tend to use are the ones i've kind of mentioned already so challenging my thoughts writing them down challenging them with with facts so um how it works is you'll write every thought down that's in your head get it all out there give yourself a percentage of how either anxious depressed or everything that you feel and it's probably going to be really high so you're probably looking at between 170 percent um how much that's affecting your your mood and then challenge them with facts or challenge them with if they'd stand up in in a court of law for example and then go through all the thoughts, challenge them, work out is it is it true, is it not, etc. And then give yourself a rating afterwards and you'll see a considerable drop. I think that's one that's worked extremely well for me. Other ones are exercise. Um, if I don't exercise, I tend to tend to struggle a bit. Um, so trying to make sure I exercise a lot of the time and do some do some stuff. Um, so that's whether that's go for a run, um, do a workout, go and hit some balls at cricket or kick a football around, whatever. Just keep them busy in that sense. Um, and talking to people, making sure that I do check in 
with family, I do check in with friends um, and understanding why I need to do that um, and being open open about that and making sure that, that that still happens, which obviously has been easier said than done at the moment, but technology and stuff nowadays is wonderful, so, so there isn't really an excuse not to, not to be able to do it, but they work really well for me. Um, yeah, and I haven't really found much that doesn't doesn't work, but um, probably the most for me, meditation, I find, and the mindfulness, I found quite hard because it's it's very still. It's very it's very hard to for me to get so still and, and let things out. So that didn't work for me, but that's not saying it won't work work for someone else. Mm. Toxic masculinity is something we try and break down a lot on this pod, Charlie. Firstly, what does it mean to you and how do you think we tackle it? You know, what examples have you seen in your own life that you can share with the listeners about how toxic masculinity has maybe affected you or affected others? I think it's, um, especially back in the day, it was hard because you had to put on a brave face all the time um, and try and be be a man as such. It was always viewed as they don't let any emotion out that you, you had faced and things like that. But I think, especially in a sporting dressing room, it was it was quite hard. Um, that was knocking around a lot, a lot of people in there, being the brash and showing the strength and things like that, and not really really talking about it. Whereas I think now people are more open to talk about it. Um, there's more conversations in that, and there's a lot more people coming out and talking about it, which I think's helped. And I think educating people on it is is a good thing. You're not going to change the world, um, but people are starting to understand it. And I think a lot of stuff that we do as a cricket team is is things in and around that we have had some some groups in and come and talk to us about about it, how we can change our thoughts, what we can do in that sense, and having these tools readily available and people understanding and knowing that they're there is is something that is helpful i think we're quite lucky that we are all all friends off the field as well as on it um and we've been friends for 20 years some of us um so that's that works well but i think it is getting better and it is something that people are starting to notice and a lot of a lot of sports have something in place and go around and talk to teams and and people um to try and reduce that that feeling as such I talk a lot on this pod as well, Charlie, about this idea of positive masculinity. Now, what are some of the qualities you think a man should have to exude to be classed as positively masculine, do you think? It's quite a tough question, that, to be honest, Matt. Um, I think a lot of it just needs to to show the, how, um, how they are as a person, not necessarily a leader on the pitch but off it as well um and actually taking time out to to talk to people um and showing that they've got the strength to to open up about stuff i think for for all the physical strength and stuff people can have i think it takes a lot more to to open up on the mental side i think that's something that's that's positive and and shows that that person really, really cares or really wants to to engage in a conversation. I think one of the key things for me 
is that I think the more people that can open up and talk about, it, especially as a male, shows extreme inner strength to be able to say, actually, yep, I've struggled with this, or yep, I am wrong, or whatever, and then be able to admit that and and talk about it is something that I see as probably one of the biggest positives in in a male. Um, there's a lot of people. Um, that used to make excuses about why they've why they've lost or why or it's someone else's fault, but the respect that you get from someone that says actually oh man's up I did this wrong or yep it was my fault or or whatever that person's probably the most positive man that you can get and there's a lot of great examples out there. Mm, I think that's a great answer, Charlie. Since writing the articles you have, you've also done lots of work as a mental health advocate in your own right in your community. Just tell me a bit about that and how you've you've grown in confidence and and, and allowed yourself to be more open as time goes on. And and have you found that it's helped anyone as well? Yeah, it's been one of the, the things that um, has been quite close to my heart. Um, like I say, I'm probably mentioning the thing I was viewed as someone that was going to go places um and people know through through sport and i think sports connects a lot of people especially in the local communities um probably even nationally and using um that as a bit of a drive to to initiate conversation and and open up about it um because there's a lot of people in sport that have probably been through the same journey or going through that journey that um not necessarily think about that or or um could actually go actually yeah i thought felt like that at that time or i i actually had something similar and with opening up and talking in in a local community and then progressing to a county wide etc it's actually increased more people in sport in areas to come up to me and be like actually yeah um, i completely understand where you've come from and and stuff or even educating people to that and um, whether they're they're a senior figure in the club or a junior coming through the ranks actually looking at at it from a different angle and focusing on the mental health side of of sport or or even in working life and kind of giving them something that they can look at and associate with has been a massive thing and the reception that i've had and and the conversations it's it's enabled or little changes in people that you notice has just been fantastic and it's something that I'm very proud of. I may not have changed the world or or changed that many people, but if I've changed one or helped one person, that's that's all that matters really. And using sport as a bit of a tool to it um has been fantastic it's something that that i love and it's something that i'm very passionate about and just finally charlie why do you think men have until very recently struggled to open up about their emotions and show vulnerability and what more do we have to do to help men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health i think it's just providing a safe place for them to talk um a lot of people are doing it now. So you've got like your Andy's Man Clubs, um, yourself at Vent, just providing a platform that they know they're not going to be judged. They're not going to, they're not going to um, have people telling other people or trying to spread stuff. And and that safe haven creates a place in which males feel confident to 
to open up. I think a lot of people, especially males, find the initial conversation hard, whereas if you've got a place that, that you know, focuses on it and and no one judges you for being there, then you're going to be more inclined to open up. Um, and I think all we can do is just keep educating and keep creating these places in which people feel comfortable to talk. Um, and the more we do that, the widespread it's going to be. Because I think if you're, if you're initiating them conversations, yes, they're tough. But if you're showing that you can do it, then people are going to stand up and look. I think that's what everyone's trying to do, and we're in a we're in a place now where it's starting to to open up more about that, and we are getting getting people more educated, and more people are worrying about about mental health. It's starting to be in workplaces where people are talking about it, from workplaces to cafes to to sporting fields, and that's all we can do. Just keep keep trying to create a safe place where no one's judgmental on, on that person or or the topic in which we are. The more information you get around a topic, the easier it is to initiate a conversation. And I think a lot of the, the information that we had going back 20 years or whatever was the far end of that scale, whereas actually um, the views that then people had are actually completely true you're thinking of of something that's actually not what's happening whereas if you educate about the illness and stuff like that you actually actually yeah I, I could fit on that scale I could be this person and um and that's one thing that we we just got to keep spreading and yourself at vent and and stuff like that is showing that that it that um it can happen to anyone and anyone can talk about it. It's not something that you need to judge over. Everyone's got mental health. Um, why would why would we not talk about it? But you'd talk about the time that you broke your leg playing football or whatever. Um, mental health's exactly the same. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Charlie for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for being so open and honest with me about his journey. As always, thank you to all the vendors who tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it or for feeling very, very generous, write us a review on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. We hope to check in with you again very soon. Remember, it's always okay to vent. It's true.